Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your producer, Peter Finger, and I have the pleasure of welcoming you in today's episode. In our show, we'll resume our conversation with our host, Dr. Erin Omar, and her guest, Dr. Jamie Arnott working with at-risk teens. In our last episode, we discussed the definition of high-risk behavior and the signs to look for that separates normal teen behavior from something that's more serious and could benefit with therapy. The importance of early intervention for high-risk and at-risk teens and the first steps to welcoming youth clients into therapy and the locus control they have to feel comfortable to participate in therapy. We'll resume our talk today by discussing the therapy environment and how we can make it a safe space to get vulnerable as a way to build trust. Okay, let's let's do talk about how you make people feel comfortable because I'm very comfortable speaking with you. I'm sure your teens are as well. So when someone is on your schedule, how do you make them feel comfortable? How do you gather some of that contextual information you were talking about earlier? Sure. The second that they enter my room, I give them control over the seating, the lighting, the temperature, there's air, there's heat, there are blankets, they can take their shoes off. I have like a little glow lamp that's different colors. They have a little Mm -hmm. remote that they can change the colors. I have overhead lighting, but it's quite bright. So typically I leave that off and I have a lamp. They can turn that lamp off. I have a lot of teens who like to see me in the dark. It's easier for them to be vulnerable and open up in a space where they're not looking at my face and they know I can't really see them. And that's an option for them. So that's the first thing that I give them control over. There are fidgets everywhere that they can access on the stand right next to them. There's a huge shelf of fidgets on the other side of the couch. I will usually reach for one and kind of explain what they have access to so they don't have to feel weird or uncomfortable about being the only one to grab one. I'll just kind of model it and grab like a pillow that you can squish or play with and do that while we're talking. Again, just to give them permission to do that on their own without having to figure out how to ask for it mm-hmm. um, or wondering what it is. And then usually I'll just have a conversation with them about what's bringing them in, review what their parents likely filled out on my intake paperwork. I never want it to seem like I'm having background conversations with Mm -hmm. their parent behind their back. I'm going to like be very transparent about my thinking and everybody's goals and everybody's concerns. And so that's going to be something I introduce in the first session when I talk about confidentiality, especially as an individual who works with high-risk clients so Mm -hmm. that teens know that if they do make a specific disclosure, I'm going to have to tell whoever's out in the waiting room what's going on before Mm -hmm. they leave. And then I'm also going to kind of kick the parents out. Like this is the teen's time. I'm going to answer all their questions, give them an opportunity to ask me questions and then say, okay, you know, if the teen's comfortable, I'd love to spend some one-on-one time with them today just to get to know them so that they can make a decision at the end of this appointment about whether or not they want to come back. And then we really just... I usually talk about their day, you know, gives me good insight into their sleeping, their eating, what it's like in school, who they talk to, Mm -hmm. if there are any issues, 
what barriers come up without having to be very clinical about it. I'm not Mm -hmm. asking them like specific diagnostic questions. I'm just wanting to get to know them a little bit. And it gives me some insight without feeling like an interrogation. And mm-hmm. I give them just as much of an opportunity to ask me questions yes, because it's a two-way street. And that's going to build trust, especially with a teenager. If they feel like I, they are the only ones that have to answer questions and they don't have the right to ask me questions, that's that's going to be a no-go. <laughs> exactly. I agree. I <laughs> <No> agree. <laughs> yeah. I was always pretty transparent with like, I may not answer all of your questions because I do sure. have to stay, you know, somewhat objective here we're not friends but i will you can always ask me and i can always say "Mm, no thanks or sure i'll Mm -hmm. answer and i used to love that yeah i think my favorite session was always the one maybe i guess it depends on the teen maybe two or three four times in where they figured out what you know what lighting they like and where they like Mm. to sit and which blanket they like and they've decided they're gonna trust you and so all of a sudden one day they just come in and plop down on the couch take off their shoes and they're like okay this happened. It's my favorite because you're like, all right, well, here we are. We did it. We built trust. Let's go. Yes. Um, and they have, obviously they are testing people as they should. That's what the mm. whole time frame is about developmentally is testing and trusting and learning who to trust. And it's just a beautiful thing if you do earn a teen's trust. So I like all yes. the ways you explain you go about making them know it's safe in a, in a way they can understand. Yes. I love that as they should. I will use that because people i enjoy working with teens because they do test you and they do keep you on your toes. And that is an enjoyable experience when you have that banter and can match, you know, the pace and tone of an adolescent in session. But it is as it should. They should be testing you. It's it's within, you know, figuring out their boundaries and trying to develop that autonomy and explore things safely and curiously that they get to do that. And I, I let them know in the first appointment and remind them in every other session that I might ask them a question that they don't know the answer to. And that's a perfectly valid response. Maybe that's the first time anyone's ever asked them that, or they've thought about that, or tried to figure out how to communicate those thoughts or experiences to someone else. And so if I ask a question and I see them kind of looking around and starting to shift a little bit and fidget, I'll just say, oh, don't forget, like, if you don't know, you can say, I don't know. I'm not going right. to. That's a perfectly acceptable response. You might ask me questions and I might not know the answer. So I might say that sometimes. So like fair right. is fair. Or also like, I know, but I don't want to share yet. That's something else that I was told that was fine. You know, yes, and that's, that's okay too. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier about holding a boundary with making sure the teen gets plenty of time with you, especially in the first session to decide Mm -hmm. if they feel comfortable and they probably love seeing another parent, like tell their parents what to do. And (laughs) although I know it might be hard for parents in some ways, you know, it's hard for parents to trust someone with their kid, rightfully so. But I do find that most parents are just happy that their child has another person to love on them and support them. So how and when would you get parents more involved with a teen's treatment or teen's therapy? Obviously, if they make a disclosure, they're going to be invited into the session before we leave for the day. I give the teen control over how that's done. I can either invite the parent in and share myself. I can invite them in and the teen can share and I'll just kind of quietly support or the teen can bring them in and I'll just like wait outside and I'm like, there's a shared work area right outside Mm -hmm. of my office, which is just next to the waiting room, which is a little bit more like soundproof to ensure everybody feels like they have privacy. 
letting them know even during that initial phone call with a parent that might be interested in setting up a first appointment that I like to have a parent only check in, you know, a month or so in once they start to really build rapport. I will let them know that's something that I'm going to prepare for with the teenager. So we're going to agree on ways that I'm going to talk about or summarize what's been going on in session, certain topics that are off limits, certain language that they'd prefer that I use, certain things that they wish I would touch on with the parent. And I also let families know that if it's been a particularly hard week and they don't want to process something together without support, that they can absolutely just walk in to the waiting room. And then when I say, oh, hey, are you ready? And the whole family stands up and is like, yep, <laughs> they can all come into my space. That's totally fine. I'm flexible with that. We do not need to always plan family sessions. Sometimes those are the toughest, but sometimes they're the most rewarding when it's kind of spontaneous and random because obviously they're really in need. And so they know that it's something that we can at least discuss mm -hmm, at the start mm -hmm. of every session if they feel like it's really necessary to at least have a little bit of one-on-one -on -one time with the parent during that time or a family session and and it, scheduling additional parent only or family sessions as needed so that we don't completely like bulldoze over the teen's time. Yes. Yeah. It sounds like I ran my practice almost exactly the same way that you run yours. <laughs> yeah. I like how you're mostly letting the family sessions be led by the teenager's needs. Absolutely. That was something that I found was really important. But then of course the parents know what's going on. And if there's something going on at home that's relevant, I would mm -hmm. same. we would sometimes have impromptu family sessions. But yeah, it's really interesting treating teens, especially teens who are or who are high risk because mm -hmm. more support is needed from the environment or we know that relationships are really helpful in supporting high risk behaviors or situations. I found myself doing a lot of like parent sessions or parent and child sessions or dyads mm -hmm. or you know just whatever's needed to help support that teen on an individual basis and it sounds like you have so much flexibility and willingness to do that, which I, I love. And I, su I'm surprised that a lot of therapists actually aren't as comfortable with that. And so I think that that's important. Maybe, maybe as part of being a teen therapist, we just have to be flexible. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> or true. have to be more flexible maybe. But I think that's really, really helpful for the families because you never know what's going on in the life of a teen, you know? Yes. And I do kind of preface my expertise with families in those first meetings and then as things might come up to let them know I am not a family therapist. Yes. I'm yes. an adolescent therapist. So if we're feeling like the trajectory would be more beneficial to be managed weekly with a family therapist or in addition to me working with the adolescent individually having a separate family therapist, that wouldn't be something I could kind of take over entirely myself. It would be something that I would refer out to someone who specializes in family therapy. Good distinction. Yes. Or like referring maybe the parents out for parent training sessions or marital therapy if needed or, you know, just, yes, that makes a lot of sense. So you, you anchor your main focus with that teenager. Yes. Cause I think yes. it is a entirely different beast of work. It is. It <laughs> is. And I'm sure there are many therapists who specialize in other things who are very grateful that you chose to do the teen focus. Absolutely. <laughs> we support each other. Yes. 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 And speaking of that referring out, what is your process for, or maybe your assessment of when a teen mm. needs to be referred out for 
either a higher level of treatment care, like a residential facility or intensive outpatient, also medications coming to mind. I know a lot of high-risk teens often can benefit from medication. Mm -hmm. How do you assess that and go about referring out, or I don't like to say referring out, maybe maybe Mm -hmm. a better way to say that is adding in support. Yeah. Or I'll say like a higher level of care. Exactly. So I don't automatically start with medication management. It might naturally come up in conversation during the intake if they have a history of medication use Mm -hmm. or I'm unclear. And then I'll kind of gauge, you know, has there been medication in the past? How do you feel about medication? Because I'm pretty open about it. I just, again, think it's worth having a conversation about it. I'm mm-hmm. not trying to push any particular agenda with any client and every adolescent and their family has their own feelings and fears about whether or not medication might be beneficial. But if I am working with a client consistently for months and I'm finding that the progress just isn't where it should be, I might introduce it into conversation first with the adolescent, talk about, you know, how they feel about it, how they imagine their caregivers are going to feel about it, how it might be best to welcome their caregivers into that conversation, whether they want to be there for that or not. And then just, again, gauging what a caregiver might be concerned about, where their questions are, providing some psychoeducation. I have a list of referrals locally that I can provide to them in terms of available and accessible individuals that specialize in medication management for teenagers. Very important. Yes. That is a unique specialty within that specialty. Yeah. And just speak to the possible benefits. Like, listen, we've been working together. The teen has been working super hard. We're seeing some progress. And it also seems like there might be some benefit to trying medication and seeing if that helps even the client be more receptive to the therapy itself, but also just in general to, you know, allow them to have access to something that might, you know, level the playing field for them a little bit. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Are you preparing for a licensure exam in psychology, social work, marriage and family therapy, counseling, or behavioral analysis? AATBS is here to help. We have been supporting behavioral mental health students to prepare for their licensure exams for more than 45 years, working with over 1 million students to succeed on test day and move on to the next step in their career. With products ranging from comprehensive courses to quiz banks and delivered live online, self-study online, and in print, AATBS has test prep solutions that meet every student's needs and learning styles. Visit us today at aatbs.com. That's aatbs.com and use promo code BHT15 to save 15% off your next purchase. Yeah, yeah. I heard the analogy one time and I always used it too of like, well, I agree that I don't want to start with medication all the time because the brain is still developing. So if it Mm -hmm. can be managed other ways, that's usually preferable, but if not, you know, they're going to end up at the same place at the end of treatment. It's just how hard do we want them to have to work to get there? Do we want to give them extra support or a little bit of a leg up? So it's that analogy of if you fall into a big hole, you can, you can climb out eventually, but like, what if someone also gave you a ladder to climb out? So yes, it's, it's, I like that idea of it being used in conjunction with therapy. And in fact, the research shows that that's the most effective. We never really just want someone to be on medication with no 
therapy either and no other ways of trying to help support, get them out of that hole. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And in terms of higher level of care, as someone who works with high-risk clients, if they're actively having thoughts of wanting to hurt themselves and our sessions and the coping skills that we discuss are not enough to kind of keep that active ideation at bay, especially if there's plan in place and tend to act on that plan, then I'm going to suggest hospitalization. There are different resources within our area that allow for them to experience that for one day, like 24 hours to see if it can, if they can be stabilized rather than just sending them directly into an inpatient unit. A lot of times it's not even me that's making that call. Schools will determine that they can no longer maintain stability or regulation in a typical school for the duration of a typical school day. So they might benefit from the added therapeutic exposure while they're also learning. So going to a date treatment program or an intensive outpatient program. But we do have a couple of inpatient hospital units. Within an hour, they're not close. They have to travel, which Mm -hmm. is going to be really tough, especially when a client and their family is in crisis. And so doing our best to kind of intervene, which speaks to your earlier question about early intervention and attempt to regulate them with outpatient services. Right, right. Sometimes they just need a little, a little boost. Yeah. And I know sometimes that stuff can sound really intimidating and scary to both the teen and the families, but it's nice to have another professional helping you decide if your teen needs that or doesn't need that or, you know, which level of care they need. And so even though I know that can be kind of a scary road, it is much scarier to not do anything and just send the teen home. And then so much weight is on the parent's shoulders. Absolutely. That was always a way I was counseled to help decide if somebody needed higher level of care is like how much weight is on my shoulders to take care of this teen, how much weight is on the parent's shoulders. And sometimes you just know, and it's not, not a functional amount. It's just too much. And that's when a higher level of care is actually, even though it can sound intense, it's very mm-hmm. beneficial for a short time. Of course. Uh, and I would reframe that a lot to parents saying something like, you know, you're already working so hard and doing such a great job supporting this client and the the client is working so hard to kind of stabilize these thoughts and urges. You guys, you know, there are other supports that can help you through this. You shouldn't have to be staying awake all night and stressing about making sure everyone's safe. If If it's at that point, then there's, there's a significant benefit to just going for an assessment, you know, at the hospital. Right. Because there are people who are trained and able to stay up all night and make sure your teen's okay. You don't have to be doing that. Yeah, I agree. So speaking of parents, is there anything that you would say to any parents that might be listening, either general advice for having a high-risk teen or just general encouragement? What what would you want to say to these unknown parents who are listening? Yes. I encourage you parents to talk to your children, to Mm. just talk to them, express an interest in what they're paying attention to, what they're watching, what they're listening to, something that they're doing. Just engage in that activity or that topic with them and they're going to they're going to feel that attention and that's going to, you know, build closeness and safety and security. Talk about feelings. A lot of times, if it's not talked about, the teenager doesn't feel like they have permission to discuss it. They Mm -hmm. might be afraid that it's off limits. 
They may be afraid that they're going to get in trouble. They might have had the experience where they've started to open up about feelings to an adult and that adult got overwhelmed. And that's valid. These things can be overwhelming, but their response was to kind of like send them to someone else to talk to about it. Like, I'll go talk to this person or this person. And then they get the impression that it's just not something that should be discussed. And so they kind of turn it inward and hold it in. And so by peers and parents and coaches and teachers just talking about feelings and normalizing that humans have emotions, (laughs) they're to be expected (laughs) and that they're okay to talk about. And, you know, we can figure out how to manage them if they feel overwhelming, that they'll be more likely that the teenager starts a conversation about their feelings because they feel like it's already a topic on the table. Absolutely. I love that sentiment. Yeah. When kids are really little, it's obvious that they express themselves through play. And so a way to connect is just let them lead in the play, just hang out with them and let them play. And it's the same thing with teenagers, except it's their hobbies or their interests or just doing something together. I think that those intense, like face-to-face conversations are really uncomfortable and difficult for some teenagers. But like you're saying, just playing basketball with them or taking a walk or just doing some activity together can open up dialogue. And I totally agree with you as well that I think sometimes parents think, or even coaches or teachers think, oh, if something's wrong, the teen will talk to me. We have a good relationship. Like they'll bring Mm -hmm. it up, right? But everything's new to them. They may not have the language for how to do that. Like you said, there's sort of unwritten rules and families and expectations that they're starting to pick up on as teenagers. And so I think giving parents permission to, even though it may seem awkward, just start a foundation of a conversation. Like, hey, when Mm -hmm. I was in high school, I sometimes felt X, Y, and Z. And the teen may look at you weird and be like, okay, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) But you might be surprised two weeks later, if you go on a walk, they might say, hey, remember when you said blah, blah, blah? Like, I'm feeling that way now. So sometimes you, you don't have to have a productive conversation about it, but just the parent laying the foundation, like you're saying, and giving them permission to talk about it if they need to then the teen will maybe initiate or respond. So I think that's really, really solid advice. Yes. If you're expecting the teen to put themselves out there, you have to be willing to put yourself out there. Yes, yes. And you don't necessarily (laughs) have to overshare, but even just saying, hey, if you ever (laughs) want to talk about this with me or heard on the news that this happened to someone your age or, you know, like you don't have to share your own experiences if you don't feel comfortable with that. But Mm -hmm. just letting them know, hey, if you ever want to talk about this, I'm here. Even if they seem awkward about it, it it goes miles in helping them know they, they can talk with you if they need to. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so where could we learn more about you and your work? Where can we learn more about BFF therapy? Give us all the details on your <laughs> your work and your program. Yes. So you can go to our website, bfftherapy.com. That has all about us, our services, how to consult with us, how to get us involved in media, and then our our Instagram at BFF Therapy, where we're posting all the time. We're doing reels and stories and posts and pictures of some of our tips and tricks, things that we might have come up with or felt were really impactful in a session and had permission to, you know, post a progressive muscle relaxation or a coping kit that I made with someone. If I make a recommendation in session and I want to make sure that the clients have access to the link, I'll post it on the stories for that day. So they don't have to like go online and look it up themselves. They can just click the link and go right to it. I understand. Easy. Ease goes a long way. Exactly. <laughs> That's great. 
And you said you're in New York, right? Did I remember yes. that right? Okay. Yes. So for those of our listeners who may not be in New York or not on the East Coast, is there a place you'd recommend parents could go to find a therapist in their area for their teen? Ooh. Well, you can go to psychology today. That's what I was thinking of as well. Providers, me included, kind of advertise who we are. There's like a little picture of us. There's like a little blurb of our background, how we might approach things. There's typically a link for our website if we have one. And it's just a way to kind of like scroll through mass amounts of providers in your area broken down into specialty. I believe Psychology Today now has the option for the clinicians themselves to identify whether or not they're even accepting new clients. They do, yeah. Um, and you can filter by insurance and mm-hmm. other items. Yeah, that's a, that's a website I was thinking of as well. So you don't even uh, have to like go through. Sometimes if I'm getting an inquiry from a, cl- a parent who wants to know if I'm working within their insurance because they have to go through insurance as an out-of-network provider, I'll suggest that they call the back of their insurance card and that whoever picks up the phone will have a list of local providers that are in network that they can reach out to, but they don't necessarily filter out who is availability and who doesn't. But Psychology Today is going to do that for you so you don't have to like finally find a person that you think would be a good fit only to realize when you call them that they just don't have space for any right. clients at this time. Yeah. I think you can also check in with your primary care or mm-hmm. your children's primary care provider. Sometimes they have a list of people locally that they can refer to. Yeah. Schools. So, schools. Oh, yes. Well. Thank you. I forgot about schools. That's a big one. Yes. Thank <laughs> you. Definitely have people they refer to as a school or primary care. That's another place as well. Yes. I definitely maintain networks with primary care providers and school guidance counselors, school psychologists, just teachers in general. Right. And they will typically like kind of find some people that they enjoy collaborating with and that will be, you know, on a list of people that they might recommend if they feel like in school check-ins, it's just not enough. Right. Right. That's really helpful. So as we wrap up, before we do, I really want to know what is some of the strangest questions that teens have asked you when they want to get to know you? Is there something that sticks out? Some funny question that some teen may have posed your way. I, yeah, I don't know off the top of my head. Our thing at BFF Therapy is no topic is off limits. So there's nothing that comes across when I hear the word strange. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> you, it's it's, all it's the just same. a question. I feel like I often got asked about like, <laughs> what's your most embarrassing moment? Or um, they always wanted to know just personal items. Like, what's your favorite color? All the way down to like, do you have kids? Or are you married? Yeah, uh, I don't know I'll, if you can think of any other examples. I usually get tested with teens on my music oh. references. That's like a big test for them because if I'm not cool and like with it, they're going to know right away. I like country music. So that's already a notch in the wrong direction for yeah, me. Yeah, that's, with that's not cool. Clients. I'm sorry. That's not cool over here. I'm learning. <laughs> I, I like Broadway musicals. And so I do work with a lot of theater kids. So that's actually served me very well. But then other clients are like, yeah, no, it's just like not my vibe. So we need to like curate a playlist. And that, that will honestly just build into more conversation of, well, who do you listen to? And do you have a playlist that you lean into when you're like feeling really down mm-hmm. or wanting to like kind of lean into more positive experiences and then we'll curate a playlist together and that's just another thing that you know we can connect on 
Yeah. I do think it's funny when I started seeing kids and teens right out of grad school. And usually the teens idea is that they want to find something in common. Mm -hmm. And my fear as a therapist when I was younger at all of this was like, what if I can't find something in common with them? But in reality, I think that they ultimately just want to know that you are a good person and you're not, you know, you are somebody that's trustworthy. And Mm -hmm. so it's it's interesting. Some of my most close clients, we had absolutely nothing in common. And so I think teens are always looking for something that's the same, but it really doesn't matter. You just want to be a genuine person. That's all that they want someone to connect with them on. Exactly. I do. Okay. I have been thinking I have the strangest question that I've been asked. Okay. Okay. I'm ready. Let's hear it. Uh, What's your take on raw fish? Oh, that is very specific. Super specific. And I got super nervous because (laughs) I love sushi so much. (laughs) And I was like, I feel like that's the wrong answer. Based on the tone and the way, the language, I feel like raw fish is not hard. No. Yeah. And so, but I'm, I told them I was going to be transparent. I told them that. I'm never going to be a clinician who is like pausing and using filler words and looking up and around while I'm thinking about what I want to say or what I want to ask them. I'm just going to go through that process out loud so Mm -hmm. they just have access to my thinking completely and aren't wondering or worrying like, oh my God, did I say something wrong? What is she going to ask me? Like, how is this going to go? And so I just said, I love sushi. <laughs> and she, she was not supportive of it. She only liked cooked fish, but we got through it. We got through it. You got it. through it. Yeah. yeah. See, that's the thing. You, they think so much ways on this. Like, oh, what if my yeah. therapist doesn't like this? And it's really yeah. okay, even though mm-hmm. to them it seems like a big deal. Yeah, that's really funny. I think <laughs> it's so funny because with adults, that type of question would seem so clinical, like so mm-hmm. strange. Yeah. But with teenagers, it's just another day, just another Tuesday. Yes. And that's what makes it so fun. I, I love yeah. working with teens. And mm-hmm. clearly, you have a great temperament for it, too. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you just so much for sharing your process and how you go about treating high-risk teens and just your your expertise and thoughts on that was really helpful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate our listeners being here with us today, too. And I want to remind everyone that this episode, its resources, and all of our other shows can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. Visit triadhq.com slash BHT today and explore our archives. And finally, we want to thank you for joining in on our conversation. And we look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavioral Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community. And if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.